Uh, my question today is, when were you surprised by an inflated view of yourself, okay? Was there ever a time where you're just like, oh, man, I'm not that great? And then also, was there a lie that you believed about yourself for a long time, okay? So make sure there's no one left out. Uh, include everyone around you. And I'll come back up in a few minutes, and we'll continue with the sermon. Are we ready now? Everyone, everyone ready? <laughs> All right, so... Um, I have two stories, actually. So I remember being in college at UCI, and I was actually with this girl I like, and we had the same class together. And um, we were walking to, to see what scores we got on the test, and I was telling her, like, dude, I killed that test. I think I got 100%. If I, if I miss one question, I'll be shocked, but maybe a 97, you know? So we're walking along. It's like a pretty far walk around uh, across the campus. I'm just bragging to her the whole time about how smart I am. And then we get to the piece of paper, and she got like an 86. I was like, that's not bad, 86. And then I, I was like, boom, there's my name. And I pointed out my score, 54%. That means there's, I'm 47% away from reality. That's, ex that's my exact number of inflated self-view. And then another story, I have, I have a lot of them, but I'll just share two. Um, I, I love shooting pool. My dad owned a pool table, and he was really good, so he taught me how to shoot pool. And uh, I was at UCI, and I would just beat all the kids there, right? I could beat everyone at UCI except for this one kid who's really good, and we just go head-to-head, -head, and I knew all the pool players. I'd be at the pool hall all the time. And then I got to Biola, and Biola was doing a pool tournament. I was at Talbot at the time. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to destroy these Christian <laughs> kids, right? They don't, no one knows how to shoot pool here. So super embarrassing. There's like three brackets, beginner, intermediate, advanced. I wrote my own bracket. Who does that? And I wrote expert. And I put my name under it. I was like, I'm going to just kill these people. And I was really, really prideful. And so anyways, I went up and I started shooting pool. And at the time, they had employees and it was, the pool's, uh, pool hall was like at the second floor and um i played the first guy and he beats me six to three i was like what i've never been beaten this bad before by like young people like older people beat me all the time but anyone my age i, I usually beat them and then he hands me off to his friend he's like hey this guy's pretty good shoot pull with them and he beats me like five to one i was like what the heck and someone else just smokes me I'm like where am i and then uh, the pool tournament comes up. One of them knows me, so they call me. And they're like, he's like, hey, Wilson, where you at, expert? You know, I was like, oh, I'm a little sick, you know. <laughs> Can't make it. He's like, come on, we want to see your skills. And then uh, what I learned later was that one of the Biola students, he is a professional pool player now. So he was getting, like, hardcore, like, uh, lessons. And he had all these disciples because all of them worked at the pool hall. So he would, just he would just, like, coach them for hours a day, and I just got messed up. And I wonder, but I wonder when we get these reality shocks, right, like, how do we deal with it? And I think it's most difficult, and sometimes we're unwilling to deal with those moments where we see the reality of who we are but we've built our whole value around maybe the facade, right? We built our whole value on what it means to be a perfect mom. We built our whole value on an identity, on our career, or our education. And for the Pharisees, they built their whole value on their spirituality. That's where they made a living. That's where they got their prestige and their platform. 
And so when you poke at someone's identity, if something's attached to someone's identity and you poke at it, people get crazy. You know, I, I remember for me, my identity was being a basketball player. And I loved basketball. And so when I played basketball, I remember, like, if I missed a shot, I, I would, like, self-implode, right? Because, like, I'm worthless. I couldn't make a shot. But if I had a great game, I would just be floating on clouds for days. But then I tore my ACL. Then I tore my other one. Then I got reconstructed. Then I tore them both again. And then I started playing basketball, but I played for fun, which is pretty much loser talk, right? Like, I wanted to get some cardio in. I had these big braces I was lugging around. And now, all of a sudden, because my identity wasn't connected at all to basketball, I all of a sudden saw all these other people who really cared about basketball. And like when they missed a shot or when they lost the game, I'm like, man, I'm glad my knees held up, you know? Burn some calories. My Fitbit says I'm winning. You know, like that's all I cared about. They were just like so angry. They would cuss people out. They want to get in fights. So I'm like, I used to be like you, but now I know I suck. And I think that's the difference between the Pharisees and the sinners. The, the Pharisees built their whole identity around their spirituality, around their righteousness, around performing. And when Jesus poked at it and showed them how shallow it was, they tried to kill him. They would cover up. They would deny it, right? They, they would pray on the street corner for hours and, and everyone would be like, that is spiritual. And they'd be like, that is spiritual. And Jesus would be like, are you doing it to be seen by people? Like, is there a superficiality to this? And they, would, they, they couldn't hear that. But you think about the sinners walking to Jesus. And, and he's like, hey, I'm, you're, we're all, you guys are all broken and you need my grace. And they're like, yep, <laughs> you're, you're a sinner, but I'm going to invite you into my kingdom and I'm going um, to bring you in through my grace. And they're like, that sounds good. Because they're walking to Jesus without any stake in their own spirituality. And, and the sinners and the tax collectors were the ones that followed Jesus. And the Pharisees were the ones that rejected them. I think about a sinner similarly to someone going to Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Versus like a coffee meets bagel date. If you go to a coffee meets bagel date, you're coming in and you're like, here's the best parts of me. You walk into AA or, or Sex Addict Anonymous and you're like, here's the crappiest parts of me. And the Pharisees walked in to every situation presenting their best. But the sinners, they already had a reputation. And in some ways, they could be more authentic and more truthful about who they were. In many ways, they could be. They didn't have a facade to protect. They weren't they weren't, they weren't self-inflated. And so we see this difference as we look at Matthew chapter 21, especially the second uh, section we'll be going through. And, and the main thing I want to point out here is the way that the Pharisees were dishonest with their thinking and with how they saw themselves. And that the sinners were able to be honest. And there's a massive difference there when it comes to following Jesus and hearing truth, and receiving grace. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. But what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven 
or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they asked, answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And so um, the chief priests of the temple come and they call out Jesus, right? He's flipping tables. He's teaching on their spot. You know, he's healing the sick. And he's gathering really their followers. And it's almost like if you watch uh, the old boys on, on Amazon, like all these superheroes are like in, into a corporate life and they're trying to get likes and stuff. That's similar to um, the Pharisees. They want people to follow them. And Jesus is stealing their followers. And so they're starting to challenge him. Hey, this is our spot. This is our temple. What gives you the right to flip tables? What gives you the right to teach our people? And then Jesus, he just comes from a totally different brand, right? To rise the, Pharise the Pharisee ranks, the ranks of the priests. You have to go through all of these teachings, and you have to learn under someone, and then they promote you, and then you get followers. Jesus and John does a completely different thing. They're like a totally different category. And so they're always at odds with each other. And as we look at kind of this question, uh, questioning each other, which is how rabbis would debate back then, oftentimes, they would, sometimes they would answer a question with a question. Jesus says, where is John's authority coming from? And think about the way that the Pharisees are thinking about this question. There's not a truth approach to it. They're not asking themselves, where is John's authority coming from? They're not asking, where is Jesus' authority coming from in a truthful way? They're, they're asking, how will people perceive our answers? How can I maintain my facade? How can I have people continue to think that I'm spiritual? And that's the filter in which they're having this discussion. So the Pharisees are talking amongst themselves. If we say from God, then Jesus will ask, why didn't you believe in him and in me? Because John was promoting Jesus' ministry. And if we say from man, then the people will be upset at us. We'll lose more likes. We'll lose more followers. So they say we do not know. But there's not intellectual integrity there, right? They have an answer, but they're unwilling to give it. They, they believe that he was from man. And so, but they're afraid of people's perceptions. And they're, they're again, hiding kind of the search for truth. They're hiding their real, um, hiding from really thinking about the question because they're so afraid of losing um, followers, losing the way that people perceive them. And then in the second passage, Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. When the father went to the other, then the father went to the son, other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but... He did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. And then he like stabs him right in the chest. Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And so Jesus is calling them out and saying, 
the tax collectors and sinners are more truthful in their interaction with me. They're more authentic in their need and dependence of me. You are not. And we look at um, this line, uh, this diagram again. Sorry. Next slide. My clicker is failing. Who's back there? Mark? Oh, Paula? Oh, okay, it's working again. Now I'm messing you up. All right. So the dad says to go and work the vineyard. And the first one says, I will not go, but he changed his mind and went. And he did what the father wanted, right? So the sinners are people who are saying, I'm not going to follow God. I'm not going to obey his commandments. I'm going to live my own life. But as they meet and encounter Jesus, as they see that, man, they don't have to, like, dig themselves out of this hole, but they can follow Jesus, receive his grace, um, they change their mind and they follow him. But look at the Pharisees or, or um, this whole religious system that Jesus is critiquing. He said, I'll go, but they do not go. And then they don't do what the father wants. But I, I notice in the, the response of the second son that he does not change his mind. So he says one thing, he doesn't change his mind, and he doesn't do it. Whereas the first son changes his mind, and he does the opposite of what he says he'll do. The second son does the opposite of what he says he, he, he will do, and he doesn't change his mind. So I think that there's this disconnect between what he's saying and who he actually is, that he might not even believe, that there's this disconnect between the reality he's putting in front of his father, if you will, or the, or the people, and who he actually is. But he believes in this false reality. And so the Pharisees are dishonest in their thinking. The Pharisees are disconnected from their sense of self because their value is based on their performance instead of God's grace. I think when we base our value on our performance of righteousness, on our performance as, uh, as and, and having these other things give us value, we're unable to look at ourselves authentically at a certain point. We start to kind of have this external uh, uh, part of us that we're presenting and then we have stakes on and then we start believing it's who we are. And there's a separation between that and who we actually are. And we see that in the Pharisees, that they're unable to present their authentic self to Jesus. And they're uh, unable to even wrestle with their authentic self, that they believe the words out of their lips. They believe in their own spirituality, even though Jesus is saying, you're, you're a whitewashed tomb with dry bones inside, right? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're displaying your, your good works and your righteousness among men, but your hearts are, are evil, are judgmental, are prideful. And so here are some of the results of performance and having kind of our spirituality staked on what we do, as opposed to having our identity and our spiritual life and our value staked on God's grace. I think when we have a performance view of ourselves, when our value is about how much we produce, how much we could do for the church, our role, uh, how people see us, it, it gives us this good-bad split. And I borrow this term from Henry Cloud, he's this Christian psychologist. And what that means is that we either see ourselves as all good or all bad, right? We, we, it's very hard for us to hold ourselves in the gray. 
And so either we see ourselves as the perfect mom or the best worker or the best Christian, and we just have this inflated view of ourselves where we can do nothing wrong, or we swing and, and we see fractures in our good. We sin and, and, and we're disgusted by it. And all of a sudden, we, we come to a place where we're like, oh my gosh, I am terrible. I'm the worst. Am I even a Christian? And, and we just kind of sit in this brokenness. But God's grace allows us Grace allows us to hold both our good and our bad together. Jesus allows us to say, man, there is good parts of us, and there is bad parts of us as well. And are we willing to be accepted and loved by God in both? And are we are willing to accept and love both aspects of ourselves? Do we have to continue to deny the bad in order to find favor with God and people? Or can we say, man, there's really good parts of me and there's messed up parts too. And because of grace, because I'm not earning favor from God, because my value isn't determined by my performance, I can have both in my arms. I, I think when we do the good-bad split, it's like we don't really understand ourselves. So we do something bad and we're like, oh, that wasn't really me, someone triggered me. Right? That wasn't really me. That was a spiritual attack. That wasn't really me. That was the circumstances that drove me to do that evil. And we don't really get it. And we don't really own it. We can't really bring it next to us and say, oh, all of what I do comes out of who I am. And so the good things I do come out of who I am. But the bad things I do come out of who I am as well. And in grace, I can hold that. Um, there was this person in my ministry who presented herself super spiritual. And, you know, I usually believe the way people present themselves. I don't, I'm not a skeptic. You know, other people walk around really skeptical. I'm like, eh, I believe you. And so she, like, um, worship really hard, asked me often how she could pray for me. She wanted to do all kinds of ministry. And, and she, every post was, like, super Christian, right? And then um, we started seeing some fractures. But maybe, again, this is kind of an extreme example but she went out, and she was drinking with some people. And then, basically, she slept with a guy in her car. And then, and then we had this big conversation about it. And then after that, it was like, okay, that was really bad. I can't believe I did that. But Jesus forgives me. And so in about less than 40, 24 hours, I'm just going to reside in this good space again. Does that make sense? Like... I can't handle being both. I can't handle saying that there's something really good things about me and really bad, and so I'm just going to swing from one thing to another. I'm going to allow my identity to be built on I'm, super, I'm a super Christian, and when, that, when things fracture there, I'm terrible. And, and God's grace says I can hold both and all of you. I can hold the good and the bad. And one of the greatest ways we see that worked out in our life is that we're able to hold the good and the bad of others, right? We don't have a hero and victim perception of everyone around us. We don't elevate people super high and then let them drop to the depths and, like, they're amazing, and then they're the worst. But we're able to say, hey, they're a whole person, you know? Like, there's really great parts of them, and there's really bad parts, and that's all of us. And we can live in that kind of gray Me me mixture. 
me and, me and uh, Christy, who pastors our young adults, we were sitting down, and it was just like an appreciation time, you know, so I was telling her how awesome she was. And then she, she like says, hey, Wilson, I love all of these aspects of who you are as a leader, as a visionary, the way you care for people, the way you look into the future. And then she said, I also love the parts of you that are your weaknesses. And I see that too. And I just felt like super ministered to, that she's someone who can take all of me and be okay. Whereas I think younger Christians, they, they can like come in to renew and elevate me. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> you know, because I'm pretty forward with my crap. And then all of a sudden, I'm like the worst human on earth. So now I'm like scared. I'm like, oh, don't, no, wait, hang on. I'm just a normal kid trying to, you know, fulfill his calling in my life. Performance makes us deny and minimize our bad, whereas grace allows us to explore our bad. I actually talked about this a little bit at Cal State Fullerton, but, you know, as Christians, we're almost trained to be like, oh, no, I sinned. God, please forgive me. And then we never examine kind of our sin. We just pretend it never happened. We pretend it wasn't that bad. But I think grace says, hey, why don't we sit in front of our sin, not allowing it to guilt or shame us because we've been forgiven, but we can sit in front of our sin and just understand it better. Like, what is it filling in our lives? What is it doing? Why, is it, why am I drawn to this? We can sit in front of our worst moments and kind of get comfortable there. Not to say that we don't want to grow out of it, but actually seeing it allows us to grow. And more importantly, as we sit in front of it, we're inviting Jesus in, right? And we're saying, Jesus, help me figure this part of my soul out. And would you be here with me? I wonder if we've sat with our mo worst moments and just kind of let Jesus hold us there to a place where we don't have to minimize it, to a place where we don't have to run away. But we can, again, be okay in that space because it doesn't define us. We're not working to be the perfect human, but we're allowing it to be real in our lives and allowing Jesus to love us there. Um, in ISF, we talk about like when we hide ourselves, when we hide those worst moments or our worst sins from God and from others, and in some ways from ourselves, we're not allowing Jesus to forgive those worst things. We're not allowing Jesus to um, reveal those worst things or to heal those worst things. But I think in my journey, I've just tried to say, God, here's my worst moments. I definitely have like a top five worst things I've ever done in my life, right? And over the years, when I, when I deny it or minimize it, Satan comes back and he haunts me. Have you ever had kind of the, your worst moments replay in your head out of nowhere and you just like melt in shame? and guilt, and you're just like, oh, that's the worst, you know? And, and it just drives you into, into this dark place. But I think what grace does is, is it says, Jesus loves you. He already knows that. He already chooses to love that part of you too. So what does it look like to hold his hand and to sit in front of it and to get comfortable with, yeah, I did that. I own it. It was super ugly. Help me to understand why, why I was driven to this space. And, and I realized that the worst sins I've ever done, if I can 
I am able to own all of it and to see its ugliness because I look up at the cross and I see the ugliness of the cross. And I'm like, even if this sin deserves death, Jesus pays that too. And I think when we minimize our sin, we're also minimizing Jesus' sacrifice, right? If we're saying, oh, this sin deserves me, like, doing a few good things or, like, being kind of sad about it, but I'm okay, then Jesus can just kind of be sad and he didn't have to die for us. So we, when we see the ugliness of our sin, we see the beauty of his grace and salvation. And when we've really received the beauty of his grace and salvation, we can sit with the ugliness of our sin. We could sit with our worst moments. We could feel the gravity of it because it drives us to our knees and say, God, that, that death and, and the bloodshed and the way you broke your body, yeah, I needed that. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. And lastly, when we perform, it forces us to have an inflated view of our good, right? We have to elevate the best parts of us and present it and say, I'm staking my identity on all of these really cool things. Like, I'm a pastor, and I preach at, you know, all these places, and I'm a really great Christian, so you should come to my church. Um, it's really easy to do that. And again, we do that in a hundred different ways, whether it's us as a parent or us as an employee or us as in our education or us in our beauty. We can stake um, all those things and have like this inflated view of ourselves, of the best part of us. But grace allows us to see the bad in our good. And that's what Jesus would point out over and over again to the Pharisees, that you're doing these things that are are good, but there's bad to them too. And they're like, no, I'm doing it with a completely pure and good heart. And Jesus is like, actually, there's a little bit of hypocrisy here. And they're like, no, no, there's nothing. But when we live out in grace, we can say, man, I, I led worship today or I preached because I want God to be glorified, because I want you to, um, you know, be fed, and because I kind of have, like, attachment issues, or I need to be accepted, or I want to be liked, right? And I can hold all of that together and say, it's never the simple Christian answer. And because even if that's the primary answer, there's things underneath it that I need to really examine and dig through. And I can only do that if my identity is on grace and not on performance. I could really only dig through all those motives that are undergirding even my good as a teacher, as a doctor, as a boyfriend or girlfriend, if I'm able to sit with his grace and say that I don't, I'm okay here, and so I could see clearly who I am, my worst, my best. I could see clearly the truth of Christ, and I can interact with him in my most authentic self. And so I want to challenge us um, just for a little bit of time to sit with Jesus and to allow ourselves to just kind of be immersed by him and say, man, God, what part of me am I hiding from you? Do I keep presenting one aspect of, my, of myself but all these other things I, is separated from you? Um, 
what does it look like to hold our worst moment in front of Jesus and to allow him to hold us there and to sit with us to see it and to see that he still loves us and he extends grace to us in that space? What does it look like to hold our best moments in front of Jesus and to allow him to dig through our motivations and to say they're not perfect because we can never have perfect motives on earth. And so I, I would love for us to just spend a, a couple minutes on our, uh, by ourselves and just kind of talk to the spirit, allow him to like make this sermon something that is real to you because we can easily be Pharisees, right? We have a Pharisee, all of us have Pharisaical sides to our soul, to how we present ourselves to others and ourselves and the Lord. What does it look like to dig through that because of his grace, because of his love, because he knows us fully and loves us fully, because he's died on the cross for our sins? Father, I just pray for moments um, right now that you would make this real, that we would see parts of us that we're hiding from you, parts of us that we're uncomfortable you, with you seeing, even though you've already seen it, parts of the good in our life that we've staked um, our identity on. God, would you work on those things in our soul, and would you uh, do that in this moment? We'll just take a few minutes, and then uh, I'll come back up and wrap up our time together. For most of my life, I was kind of always seen as the, the good Christian. Um, in high school, I started a prayer movement, like 70 kids would come out. I started interning at church when I was a second year in college and started youth ministry. And then I uh, went to seminary. But in 2008, it's interesting to not know what I stake my identity on unless until God removes it, right? Like we all kind of know that we're children of God and then something gets taken away and we're like, oh, actually I was a child of that other thing. And um, in 2008, like, I remember just going into major depression. I lost my girlfriend of four and a half years. I failed, I was failing seminary classes, mostly Greek. 
my pastor didn't like me. He wanted to fire me. And then he sent me to like obedience school in uh, Singapore. And there, I just, I didn't have a platform. I wasn't a pastor. People looked down on me, you know. They, they didn't think I was a good Christian. And that was like the first time I felt that way in my whole life. And I wonder what are those moments where God just strips away um, all the things you kind of built your identity on, you're good on. He does that to everyone, you know, like Moses. Um, he just shepherds for 40 years. Uh, David is running from Saul. Joseph is in prison. I think for all of us, if he's going to use us, if he's going to um, help us find him in an authentic way, he, he removes things. There's, there's hard pruning in different seasons in order for us to focus on the vine instead of on the fruit. And I remember being in Singapore and just spending months and months reading God's word and rebuilding my identity on him. And I still struggle with that. But I have these sweet moments of pruning that I get to go back to. I'm like, man, you do love me. Even when I haven't preached for a year, even when everyone thinks I'm a crappy Christian, even when I lost all of my uh, titles and roles, you love me here. And God, I just pray for that moment for each of us and that we would embrace it. It's hard to embrace those moments. But I pray maybe for some of us who are going through a season of pruning right now, that it would allow us to embrace you and to, and to say, man, God, I still build my value on these other things. You've taken away. Help me to focus on you, to know that I'm loved and accepted in you. And I pray that that would be enough. Maybe for those of us who are doing well in our career or our social life or our families, will we go back to those moments? And would it root us down and remind us that God is enough, that, it, that we're living by his grace and that he loves and, and accepts us? I would love for us to take communion this morning and to remember, again, he died for us. And he died for us and loved us and accepted us when we've done nothing right, <laughs> when we're still sinners, right? Jesus died for us and invited us to his family. I pray that as we go to the communion table this morning, that we could let go of all the good and all the bad and just come as we are, accepted, known, and loved, that we're his kid. Will we all stand for communion this morning?